It's a delight for us to be here and for one of the students and myself for our second year to be here. We enjoyed ourselves very much last year. And for those of you, it was a pleasure for us to meet last year and meet you again and then the others of you who are meeting you as well. I'm glad we were given a couple of moments to tell you just a little bit about the school because some have been asking. And you know, it's awfully easy when the grapevine starts telling the story how it gets confused. We don't have 3,000 students and we don't have 10 dormitories or anything like that. Uh, our school is going now into its third year. It began out of necessity. They said necessity is the mother of invention. We had a number of students who were interested in our home church to study the Word of God in a uh, definite way. And we had no place to send them. We had no... Uh, school that we uh, could feel we would want to send them to, and some of them were married and uh, had a family and could not go away. So if Mohammed cannot go to the mountain, we brought the mountain to Mohammed. And uh, this is now our third year, and we have eight full-time students, and we have several part-time students as well. And the Lord has blessed us, and uh, some of those blue shirts that you see around are not shirts, actually windbreakers are the students that go to the school. And they're having a good time. I know they are. I don't see them. I'm kind of worried. If anything goes wrong, will you let me know? I warn them they're free to do whatever they want, but remember that they're a representative, and if they do something wrong, you let me know, and we'll talk to the representative. Also, I'd like to say one other thing, if I might. Uh, some of you... Uh, are a little bit confused. Last year I told you that we were missionaries in Holland and some are confused as whether I'm in Holland or in Pennsylvania. We were in Holland for four years as missionaries in southern Holland and we returned just a few, uh, well four years ago we returned and uh, the Lord has brought us to Pennsylvania and that's where we are now. And I passed through a church called St. Peter's Independent Reformed Church. Now that isn't interesting, isn't it? Uh, the message of St. Paul in St. Peter's Church. and uh, But that's the church we had, and it came from the uh, Reformed background, and now it's independent. And uh, even worse than that, it's fundamental, and beyond that, it's a grace church. Uh, all of our men on the official board are great believers. In fact, all but one are members of the Brian Bible Fellowship, and a number in the church uh, are now understanding the Pauline Revelation, and we thank God for that. One person asked me last year, how many members do you have? I said, well, wait until next year. We're in the middle of a division. Uh, just before we came to the conference, some people decided they didn't want to go in the grace line. And uh, we left the church. We didn't leave it, but we came here. And as we returned, we found that 40 of our members decided not to go along. And uh, we almost didn't have a church besides. So God has blessed us, and we're now coming along. And we've had several more families joining in on the ministry, and God continues to uh, bless the work there. And we're thankful uh, for the privilege of being here. All right, that brings you up to date with the speaker, and now we'd like you to turn with us to the Word of God. I must be careful of the time. I was talking with a couple of the students, and they tell me my sermons never end except... 40 minutes long, and I have a little bit longer this day. I've got 45, but I'll try to keep it through the time so you'll get your break at 10. 
First Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians in chapter 4. If I might say one thing before I do go into the Word of God, uh, I would never try to challenge Pastor Stam on theology, but I might on history, especially Dutch history. Yesterday he was saying something that wasn't quite 100% true. Uh, maybe theologically I'm not saying that the kingdom was vested in the king, but nonetheless the country of Holland, the kingdom of Holland, was vested in the queen, but she wasn't in Canada. Her family went to Canada, but she stayed in England and was close at hand through the whole war, and uh, she kept Radio Nederland op uh, Radio Holland open from England, and her family went to Canada. And I think we had quite a wonderful queen, really, at that time. She was truly a I believe her in the Lord Jesus Christ, and she really stood firm. But she was in England when the family went to uh, Canada. <laughs> <laughs> now I feel humbled after he said that. <laughs> verse Thessalonians chapter 4, and we'll read through to chapter 5 and verse 11. But I would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning them who are asleep, that you sorrow not, even as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also who sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not precede them who are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. But of the times and of the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. For when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as prevail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all sons of light and sons of the day. Ye are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober-minded. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that are drunk are drunk in the night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Wherefore, comfort yourselves together and edify one another, even as ye do. Shall we look to God in prayer? Our Father, we thank thee for thy holy word. We thank thee that it is thy divine revelation to us. 
We thank thee for the Spirit of God who is able to take thy word and to make it known unto us. We ask in this hour that we might glorify thee and that thou wilt speak to our hearts. For we ask it in the Lord Jesus Christ's name. Amen. My topic is a signless event. And I've been enjoying the messages that went before. And several of them have taken some of my key punches from me. But nonetheless, uh, it was worth hearing, and we may repeat a little bit of what was said. But in the introduction to a signless event, I'd like us to note verse 13, where the apostle says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. I think if there's ever a day I would like to see that phrase used time and again, it's today. I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren. How many times does the apostle say that? How many times does he give some admonition to the believer before he says something and we give no credence to what he said? When we first came to the church where I am now, we used to repeat every Sunday the uh, Lord's Prayer. And we know the dispensational uh, feelings towards that. They did not. And we felt the best thing to do is just explain to them what the Scripture says, be not as the heathen, and through vain repetition keep repeating this prayer. Well, without even going into the dispensational, just taking the heed that the Scriptures tell us. And here the Apostle says, I do not want you to be ignorant. God puts no premium on ignorance. We hear the saying that ignorance is bliss. I don't believe that's true, especially when it comes to spiritual things and to the Word of God. Ignorance can be quite dangerous. It can cause great loss of reward, and it can cause great division within the church and has, because we are ignorant of the Word of God. And the Apostle says here in this matter concerning this signless event, I do not want you to be ignorant concerning this and concerning this matter. It is true that we are responsible people before God. Romans 1 tells us that. I don't care if you happen to be in the state of uh, Indiana or if you happen to be in the continent of Africa or South America, wherever you might be, mankind is responsible before Almighty God. And I didn't say that. God did. And we are responsible before him. And if we are ignorant to the fact we are responsible, we are nonetheless responsible. If the heathen does not know that Christ died for his sins on Calvary's cross, he still nonetheless is responsible to receive Jesus Christ as his Savior if he's going to go to heaven. A relative of mine who happens to be a nun in a certain Christian religion was visiting with me one time at home, and I was at home too. I was from seminary, and she was from the convent. And you know what happens when you get a seminarian and a convent lady together. We started talking on things, on spiritual things, at least religious things as far as she was concerned. And as we were talking, I thought the best thing I can do instead of arguing theology is just simply give her my testimony. And time again, I did. And I'd always say I've got one better. I'm already accepted in the beloved one. 
are you? And she couldn't answer that. And finally she got down to the place. She said, well, what do you do with the heathen? I said, tell them the gospel. She said, but what about the ones who never heard the gospel? Where are they going? I said, to hell. Oh, no, she said, that can't be. God, a just God and a holy God and a loving God could never cast someone for not knowing the truth into hell. He said, if they do not hear the truth, then they will go to heaven because they are ignorant of the truth. And I asked her, I said, what about the so-called Great Commission where Christ would go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature? Why would Christ send the apostles into all the world to preach the gospel to every creature if every creature was going to heaven if they didn't hear the gospel? And she was talking further with me. She said, now, for instance, like I'm telling you, now that you have heard the doctrine, you are more responsible for what you have heard now than before. And I said to her, would you do me a favor and keep your mouth closed? Because if you do not tell me, then I'm not responsible. And why didn't Christ say to his apostles, stay here in Jerusalem, keep it to yourself, because if you do not, the whole world will be condemned. I believe the scriptures teach us that the whole world is already condemned. The heathen in New York City, as well as the heathen in South America, condemned because they believe not in the name of the only begotten Son of God. When Christ said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and that no man comes unto the Father but through him, he, I believe he meant what he said. But we go on with the fact, I feel, I think, I believe, and I've heard that so much that I'm tired of it. And especially amongst theologians, it's amazing how they cannot give you chapter and verse. We had a teacher in school that used to aggravate me. Always, whenever you would say something, chapter and verse, please, chapter and verse, please, and nine times out of the ten, I didn't have a chapter and verse. I may have known a fragment of the verse, or I might think it was somewhere I had the principle, but they'd always say chapter and verse, please. I think it's about time we get there. It's about time we get to know what God has said than what we think he has said or what we hope he has said or what he should have said. And the apostle says, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren. I want you to be wise. I want you to know what God has said. And as we come to this matter of a signless event, as we come to this matter concerning the rapture, the translation of the church, the blessed hope, whatever you want to call it, the departure. As we come to this, we realize that there's much confusion among the people of God. One of the verses I was going to give you, uh, I'm not going to give you now because we had it last night with Brother Bergener. Interesting, isn't it, how two are going to be grinding and one taken and the other one left, and the one that's taken is the one who's taken up in the rapture especially when he gives us illustrations from Noah's time and other times of those who were taken away were not raptured. They were not taken up into glory, but rather off into judgment. And because we misread the word of God and because we do not pay attention to what God has said, we go off into a wrong tangent and then down a wrong road. We need to get back to that road. I believe that the Lord's return is imminent. I believe it can happen at any time. 
I keep telling that to certain ones, and they keep saying, I believe that too, but I don't believe he's coming back tonight. Well, then how in the world can it be imminent? <laughs> if he can't come back tonight, I don't know how it can be imminent. Some have told me that they expect in the next 10 years he will be back. I have no idea. Maybe the next thousand years. I don't know. I have no idea when he's going to return. But I believe he could and may, and I'd like to see him come back tonight. I really wish he'd come back last night. <laughs> but as we speak about this signless event, I'm not interested in what you feel, if you'll excuse me for that, and I don't think you're interested in what I feel or what I think. But what has God said? If you'll turn with me, to the second, uh, first Corinthian letter in chapter 1, a verse that is so familiar to us, at least it ought to be if it isn't, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and verse 22 tells us something that I think is very important concerning this signless event. <clears throat> Chapter 1 and verse 22, a very short verse, but a, a very meaningful one. For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom, and don't they still? If there's a God of the Gentiles, it surely is education, isn't it? The Greeks seek after wisdom, but notice the Jews seek after a sign. If we are to note this signless event, I'd like us to know three things. Signless people, a signless dispensation, equals an, a signless event. A signless people, first of all, we know there is a people who is his sign people, the nation Israel. It says the Jews require a sign, and that's not too difficult to understand. And it's rightfully so that they did require a sign because God dealt with them in that manner. How many times in the Old Covenant and also during the ministry of Christ here on the earth and so did we see signs in relationship to Israel as God spoke with them and as God dealt with them and as signs were shown them. And God dealt with them in this way and Israel expected it and looked forward to it and ask God at various times, and there's even times when God says, you're not going to ask me, I'm going to tell you something. Remember when he spoke about the Lord Jesus Christ, and he said that a virgin shall be with child? He's going to show him a sign. One time I was sick in Holland in the hospital, and a man came, a clergyman, came to visit me and to cheer me up. And I think I felt worse after his visit than I did after the surgery. He came and he tried to cheer me up and he started speaking to me on the scriptures. He was an existentialist. That's enough to give anybody gray hair, you know. He came in and he talked with me and he said as we talked on that he didn't believe Jesus Christ ever existed as a person, but that it was good conquering evil. He didn't, be, and he was a Roman Catholic clergyman, by the way. I don't know if you're allowed to say that. Excuse me if you're not. But anyway, I thought we'd at least agreed on the virgin birth. And he asked me, he said, do you believe that's a physical virgin? And I said to him, well, if it isn't a physical virgin, then where is it a sign? 
There's plenty of spiritual virgins if you want to talk about people who are trying to live a righteous life for God, if that's what he's referring to. But there are not many physical virgins that have children. He said, I never thought about that. But the scripture says that it's a sign, it's a miracle, it's something that's going to happen. And something did happen. And the Lord Jesus Christ was born of the Virgin Mary. We find that God says, here's a sign, I'm going to give you a sign. Don't ask me for what I'm going to give you a sign. For he dealt with his sign people. But the day of miracles are not past. I don't believe that. I don't believe that. But before you become upset with me, I believe the day of miraculous signs have passed away. When God stopped dealing with his sign people, his signs stopped being dealt with. But miracles haven't stopped. When both my children were born, I was there. And do you know, if you've ever seen a child born, it's a miracle of miracles. I haven't studied much biology, but you know, if you just think about it, how in the world can it happen? But it happens every day. Last night when you were sleeping, how many people stayed awake to make sure your heart was beating properly? Do you tell your heart to beat so often and so? No. Miracles are happening all night long while you're sleeping and resting and your body is refreshing itself. We find that miracles are taking place. The very fact that you and I are here today is the fact that there is miracles and we have a God of miracles. There's something that holds this whole universe together. They told me a few years ago God was dead. I knew he wasn't. I knew he wasn't. Because if he died, nothing would be held together. Nothing would be held together, for by him all things consist. That's a miracle, you know. That goes beyond my comprehension. The day of miracles are not past, but the day of miraculous signs have, because God has stopped dealing with his sign people. But when he stopped dealing with his sign people, he started dealing with his signless people. I have a book here I'd like to read from. I'm sure some of you, if not all of you, are well acquainted with Sir Robert Anderson. And his book, The Silence of God, I think is a, trem a tremendous book. I understand it's back in print. This one is uh, rather old, but I understand it's back in print again. But I'd like to read to you just something this man has said. He to whom the prerogative of judgment has been committed is now sitting upon the throne of God in grace, and that as a consequence, all judicial and punitive action against human sin is in abeyance, deferred until the day of grace is over and the day of judgment draw, uh, dawns. This is a truth that will be sought in vain in the standard theology of Christendom. If you've sought recently, you'll find it's true, even today. My gospel, the apostle calls it, for it was through him that this truth was revealed, not the gospel promised afore, but the preaching of Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which was kept secret since the world began. Even among men, the wise and strong keep silence when they have said all they wish to say. And as this gospel of grace is the supreme revelation of divine mercy to, a world, to the world, 
the silence of heaven will remain unbroken until the Lord passes from the throne of grace to the throne of judgment. When God stopped dealing with his nation Israel and started dealing with this world in grace, he went from his fine people to his signless people. Maybe sometimes we would like to see a sign. Maybe sometimes we'd like to be one who could do great miracles. You'd surely get crowds. You'd surely get crowds. And maybe sometimes it's hard for us to understand why God doesn't do something about this old world, except the fact we must understand he's sitting upon God's throne of grace. I'm thankful for that because if he did not, I wouldn't be saved. For it was by grace and through his faith I wasn't worthy of it. I was worthy of the judgment I think others are worthy of today. No, it's upon his grace that he sits, upon that throne of grace which he sits. But there's a day he's going to get off that throne and then we're going to see justice. You know, I do not believe there's much justice in this world. In fact, I'm not looking for justice in this world. We have a man in our home church who came to Christ a couple of years ago and he comes from a uh, denomination where he really never heard the truth. And now he not only knows the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior, he understands the Pauline revelation. He doesn't always say it quite the way we would say it. I can remember one time at a Bible study and someone was talking about healing. He said, don't you know about that special revelation of St. Paul? Just as bluntly as that. And he works for the state of Pennsylvania. And now the man is going to be taken off the court unjustly because he had Bible studies. And we have a woman in our area who is an atheist and warned him, do not have Bible studies. Do not have them in this building. And we were put out of the building. And he went to his home. She warned him, do not have those Bible studies in your home. And he continued on. And now, on false charges, uh, it seems as though he's going to have to go to court. Why? Why does God allow that? Why? And I was talking to him not too long ago, in fact, just prior to my coming here, and I asked him, how do you feel? He said, I know all things work together for good. He stands to lose everything. If he loses this case, he will lose his right to work in the state of Pennsylvania. He'll lose his right to uh, work in the business he's been in. And he'll have to go back, he said, maybe to dry cleaning. He says, that's always picking up. But nonetheless, that's what he wants to do. He wants to do the will of God, and he's not going to yield. Why doesn't God do something about that? Why? Because God is sitting upon his throne of grace, and whosoever will may come. But I want to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, something. While I believe we're in the age of grace, and I don't know how long it's going to last. I hope it only lasts till tonight, really. Uh, but nonetheless... He's going to get off that throne of grace one of these days and we're going to see judgment and righteous judgment like has never been seen before. I believe that. But during this time, he's dealing with his church, the church of this dispensation, his body, and he's dealing with us exactly how he said he would deal with us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. For he says, we walk by faith and not by sight. 
Now, we talk about positives and negatives. There is a positive and a negative. We positively walk by faith and negatively not by sight. Now, that verse is interesting to me. Maybe I've got a little light on this and maybe I've got a little darkness on this. I suppose maybe some of you will help me to be enlightened. But I believe this, or I, uh, here I go, I believe, I hope. <laughs> it seems to me Israel walked by faith as well, did she not? But she also walked by sight. The church of this dispensation walks by faith and absolutely not by sight. I haven't seen any sheets let down recently from heaven. I know some people who see things almost that bad, but I haven't. And I haven't had any water on my fleece recently. And there are many things which Israel did see and did have, even though she was walking by faith. But I believe today you and I, as children of God, do not understand what faith is too often. We have been taken on to believe what the world teaches about faith. Faith is something which is intangible. Faith is something you can't prove, you can't get a hold of, you can't disprove it, and you can't prove it. Have you ever heard anybody say that to you? And if you want to see a Dutchman's blood pressure go up, that's the time to do it. I don't believe that's faith at all. I believe faith is what God says faith is. Let's turn to Hebrews. We all know it so well. Chapter 11 and verse 1. We can quote it, but do we understand it? <clears throat> now, faith may be a lot more than what I'm going to give you here, but it can be no less. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. There's two words that stand out in my mind in this verse. Have you noticed substance and have you noticed evidence? Those are two concrete words. Substance and evidence. If you're driving down a street and a policeman pulls you over for driving too fast or whatever it might be, and he asks you for some proof, some evidence, some substance that you are a driver, and you smile at him and say, can't you take my word for it? He's going to smile back, isn't he? He's going to ask you for substance, something that is provable. In the Dutch translation, the word is beveis, and they use the same word for your driver's license. That's why that always comes to my mind. He wants proof, something that is tangible. And our faith is based upon something that is tangible. I believe the word of God is understandable. I really do. I believe God wrote it to be understood. And I believe it can be understood. Now, there are certain things that go beyond my understanding, but if I can accept the premise of my logic to be that we have a God that is almighty, all-powerful, can do anything, why, I've got no trouble understanding the Word of God. If I can understand and believe that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, there's nothing else too difficult for me to comprehend or to understand. I accept that as my premise. 
Now here he says, faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. That's what faith is. And then he goes on through the rest of the chapter to show the outworking of that faith. What is that substance? What is that evidence? It's the word of God. For by faith, Noah built an ark. How come he built that ark? Because God told him to. And of course, Paul goes along with that in Romans 10:17, where he says, uh, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You want more faith? Don't try to build up your emotions. Now, there's nothing wrong with emotions so long as they're guided in the right direction and by the right spirit. But we can't trust that. We've got to trust the infallible word of God, and that's where faith comes, from hearing the word of God. All right, he says we walk by faith and not by sight. Israel walked by faith, all right, but she had something to see as well. We have nothing to see. I have never seen Jesus Christ. I have never seen Jesus Christ. I met one lady once a couple of years ago who did. And I had a difficult time to explain to her she didn't. She was an older woman, and we were always taught as children to respect our elders and not to speak back, and it's still as hard for me to do so. And I tried to do it in the most uh, conservative way, if you want to use it, or the nicest way possible to talk with her. She said she was in her kitchen, and Jesus Christ walked in and smiled at her. And I said, what did he look like? He said, just like those pictures of him. I said, which picture? Which picture? You choose the one you want in order for him to look like that. But nonetheless, he walked in, he said nothing to her. And I asked her, what did he look like? And she said, he looked like those pictures. And I said to her, you know, I really believe Jesus Christ is going to visit this world someday. But before he does, he's going to come and he's going to take away the believers to be with him. We're going to see him just as he is. And then I told her a little bit about the gospel. She didn't agree with me, and she said, well, that's all I wanted to tell you is that I had seen Jesus. Faith is based upon the word of God, not upon what my eyes have seen, for we're not walking by sight. Have you ever seen something you thought you saw, and you really didn't? And not by sight. So we are living, we are people who are a signless people. We are a people who are being dealt with completely by faith. I know I'm saved. Positively, I know I'm saved. I couldn't always say that. I wasn't even sure for a long time I was part of the elect. I believe there is an election, you know. And I can remember in, uh, we had an altar call one time amongst our churches. I won't tell you what church I was from. We had an altar call, and if you ever heard an altar call like this, all those who are elected come forward. I'm serious, that was the altar call. And I wanted to go forward, but I wasn't sure I was part of the election. There I was debating, should I go, am I not? But I know I'm saved. Because I believe the scriptures, and the scriptures tell me by my faith in Jesus Christ and by his grace, I'm accepted in that beloved one. 
I realize now as something I didn't realize for a long time that I've been identified with him in his death and his burial and in his resurrection and that happened the moment I believed and not only that but I was seated with him in the heavenlies that when he ascended so did I and positionally I'm there right now and someday he's coming back to take me there I believe that if you told me you were going to come to my cottage and take me somewhere today I would believe you and like John says, if we can believe the witness of man, the witness of God is greater. And he's told me I'm already dead, buried, and risen again, and seated, and someday he's coming back to take me with him. Why must I fear and tremble? I believe it. That's faith. Not because I want to believe it. I must believe it because that's what God has said, and his witness is greater. But I have no signs to prove that, for I am a signless person. I cannot find a sign, for God is not giving me one. But we must go on very quickly. We are also in a signless dispensation. We are also in a signless dispensation. Not only are we a signless people, but God is dealing with us in this way, and in this dispensation, and what he's dealing out, he's doing it in a signless way. There have been secrets in dispensations. We've heard of the secrets of the kingdom, and we also know we'll not turn to it, but what Peter makes mention of, that the prophets of God, even the revelations that were given to them, they didn't comprehend all of what God was saying through them even. There were things that were secrets to them, which later on were to be made clearer. And John, the beloved one, as he writes in his book of the Revelation, he adds on to that prophecy that was already given and there are certain things that they didn't understand or know and he adds on to and they were secrets in that dispensation but it wasn't the dispensation of the secret. I believe as I forget I think it might have been Pastor Johnson said I believe and our school taught, by the way, not only Milwaukee's school taught, but also our school taught, that the whole book of the Revelation is futuristic. Every chapter of it. And our key verse is 110. When you understand what God is saying there, or what John is saying there by inspiration, we understand that. So that dispensation, though it had secrets to it, it was not the dispensation of the secret. But we are living in that dispensation today, that dispensation of the mystery, that dispensation of the secret. But if you were to ask the average person today, they don't know what you're talking about. You talk about the mystery and they get shaken up. Although the word mystery is there, you use the word secret and they don't know what you're talking about. It should not be a secret any longer, but it still is to too many. But we're living in that dispensation. Ephesians 3, we'll, well, we can turn to that just for a moment, if you will. Ephesians chapter 3, which is such an important portion to us, we find that in this dispensation that we now live, this dispensation of the secret, that the apostle says... <clears throat> How that by revelation, verse 3, he made known unto me the mystery. Then he says in verse 4, <clears throat> I'm sorry, verse 5, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, to Paul by Jesus Christ through direct revelation, and to all others by the Holy Spirit of God, 
And the apostle says it was given unto him to make all men to see what is the dispensation of the mystery. We're living in that time, and it's a secret time, but it's a signless time because God is now dealing with his timeless people. Now turn with me to our famous chapter 24 of Matthew. You know, even when I was in school, I didn't believe that this could be dealing with us. I made believe I did, but I really couldn't believe it. I was like the little old lady in church who was on the devil's side all the time, you know. And when the preacher said the devil was coming, everybody else ran out but her because she was on his side all the time. I couldn't believe it because I couldn't understand how it could be for us. How many times do we hear Matthew 24? In verse 4, Jesus said, answered and said, Take heed that no man deceive you. Do we pay any attention to that? Don't let anybody deceive you, and yet we're deceiving ourselves because we're not paying attention to what he's even saying. For many shall come in my name and say, I am the Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, and see that ye be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For a nation shall rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilence and earthquakes in uh, various places. And these are the beginning of sorrows, and they shall deliver you to be afflicted, and they shall kill you, and, they, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall, be, uh, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall arise and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall grow cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached unto all the world for a witness uh, unto all nations, and then the end shall come. I believe every word of what I said. Every word of it. And I don't have to misconstrue it, and I don't have to make it to sound something else. When he says, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached into all the world, and then the end shall come, I cannot read into that, then the rapture shall come. And yet, how many believers today are looking forward to the fact that we must have wars, that we must have rumors of wars, and that we must have this gospel preached into all the world? We've got 2,000 uh, languages to go, but yet his return is imminent. The logic of it. A friend of mine in Holland, he was speaking with me on this, and he was an evangelist, and I was telling him about this very same thing because he gave me this gospel, uh, this per portion of Scripture. And he said, the Lord, if we have 2,000 languages to go, and it was his desire to give as much money as we could so that the rapture could come. And I said, that's not going to bring the rapture. I said, by the time you get that Scripture fulfilled, I'm already gone. But he wasn't too great of a theologian, really. He really wasn't. 
because just prior to that he told me he knew the Lord could return any time, but he couldn't return until after his children were grown, because he had dedicated them unto the Lord. And he said, Lord, if these children cannot serve thee, take them from me right now. And God didn't take them. So he knew that they had to grow up and be serving God, and yet the return is imminent. Because in this dispensation of the mystery, it's a signless dispensation. We're not looking for signs. I'm looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing, and I don't know when that can happen, or will happen rather, but I do know that nothing has to happen. It could have happened in Paul's day. In fact, he thought he would be part of those who would be caught alive. I believe I'm going to be part of those caught alive. The rest of this message is on side two. Please turn your tape over at this point. And I know I'm going to have some part in that rapture anyway, even if I die. I know that. And in conclusion, if it's a signless people, and if it's a signless dispensation, then our conclusion must be it's got to be a signless event. Because this event is going to culminate, is going to bring to a conclusion this dispensation. And if God is not dealing with us with signs and wonders and miracles, then therefore it has to be a signless event. It's logical to me. But then they say you must take a dustman for what he means, not what he says. So I don't guess we're too known for being logical. But it sounds logical anyway. But there's something else that thrills my heart. It's also biblical. If you'll turn with me to 1 Corinthians, <clears throat> 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. This is a great resurrection chapter. I don't know how many dead bodies have been blessed with it. But the living saints know so little about it. Notice he speaks here in this 15th chapter. He speaks about the order of the resurrections. And then we come down to verse 51. And by the way, in the order of those resurrections, when he speaks back in verses 23 and 24, but every man in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterwards they that are Christ that is coming, it's not the rapture being spoken of there. Because later on he talks about the secret. The secret. Now how do I know it's not the rapture? Pastor Shriver gave us some good reasons, and we're using those reasons. God gave me a brain. How in the world can it be a secret a few, uh, a few verses later on and here it's already known? He's speaking here about something that he didn't speak about here. Now, I don't know if everybody agrees with that, but that's all right. But in verse 51, we all agree he's speaking about the rapture, I hope. Behold, I show you a sign. Do you note that? No. Behold, I show you a secret. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. I'm not looking for a sign. 
I'm looking for the secret coming. I'm looking for the secret coming. There is very definitely a difference between his coming to this earth, his second coming, and also the secret coming. There was a time I believed it was twofold, but it was awful hard to fold that, you know. God speaks about his first coming, and he speaks about his second coming, and do you know, as far as I'm concerned, there are more obvious passages of Scripture that speak about his second coming than his first. If you look at those scriptures that allude to his first coming, they're awful vague, some of them, at least I find them be, to be so. If it hadn't been for the uh, writers of the scripture to explain them to me, I would have never found it out. But there's an awful lot of those second uh, coming verses that are much more explicit, at least to my mind. When God says that the law is going to go forth from Jerusalem, it's not hard for me to understand that. It's not hard for me to understand that. And it is not twofold purpose. It's a onefold purpose. He's coming back to this earth to rule and to reign in righteousness. And before he comes back to this old earth to rule and reign in righteousness, he's coming back secretly to take away his secret people from this secret dispensation. That means you and that means me. And that's exactly what God says, or what the Apostle says by inspiration, I show you a mystery. Will not all die, will not all sleep, but will all be changed. Isn't that a blessing? Sometimes I wonder how I'm going to share heaven with certain people. And they wonder how they're going to share heaven with me. But you know, I'm thankful that we're going to be changed. Behold, I show you that mystery. I show you that event, that signless event. No man knoweth. No man knoweth. But I believe it's going to happen, and I'd like to have it happen today.